Hello everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube, you can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. Leave us a rate and review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week we watched Shoplifters 2018. And here is your synopsis. On the margins of Tokyo, a dysfunctional band of outsiders are united by fierce loyalty and a penchant for petty theft. When the young son is arrested, secrets are exposed that upend their tenuous, below-the-radar existence. This film stars Lily Frankie and Sakura Ando, and is directed by Hirokazu Kurita. So, Dale, what were your thoughts on this film? Um, it's a beautiful movie. It's one of those, um, very much if you watch it, you're going to get Parasite vibes. Um, just, you know, down on your luck family. Um, this movie, per, like, I think you mentioned it premiered in Cannes in uh, 2018, and also won the Palm Dior while I was there, and I think it was also nominated for, um, uh, Best Foreign Language Film that year at the Oscars and Golden Globe, so it's a beautiful made movie. Um... But yeah, it's one of those literal, like, found family stories. Like, it's one of those situations where, um, you know how when you're in college and you, like, develop a connection with your friends beyond the connection you have with your friends back home or your actual family? And I think one of the characters does mention that, like, maybe the young girl found us. Like, usually your connections with your found family tend to be some, for some reason, you know, stronger than the ones you have with your biological family sometimes. And it was a it was a beautiful movie with like a bag a ragtag group of misfits who were all lonely and missing people in different ways. Um my only my only thing was, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery, HBO, whatever, the Max, this whatever. It's on your streaming platform. This is a Japanese foreign language film. Why, when I click it to press play, Spanish audio plays. Fix it. Give me the Japanese audio and the English subtitles, I'll be fine. I don't know why I'm giving Spanish Spanish audio in this movie. Maybe if it was an English dub, maybe that's fine, but why am I getting Spanish audio? That was my only gripe about, you know, watching it. Because usually when I, like, I watch foreign films, I don't have an issue with, you know, reading sub the subtitles. But I always like to feel like the essence of the film in hearing the native language with it. Even though I don't understand it, the inflection they say stuff really does help, you know, when you're reading and watching, like, the intensity of it. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was, like, clicking around being like, um, hello, like, what's wrong with this? Like, it's in my computer. I was so confused. Apparently, there is a version of this movie on YouTube that I think is in the original Japanese with subtitles but you know i don't know how those things work you know copyright and such like it might not be there tomorrow if you go look that's what i'm saying i'm just saying like when i check for it i did a lot of digital sleuthing to find out find a japanese version online so yeah yeah it's kind of a mess because i was like why am i it just felt so disjointed like I'm watching a Japanese story with Spanish like dubs over it. And it's just felt like I was like, this doesn't make any sense because there are plenty of foreign films on HBO max that 
are in the original language with English subtitles. So I don't get why this one had to be. It's just like, it's like when I was trying to watch Masculine Feminine last week and it wouldn't play. I was like, what is happening? Yeah. This streaming service is honestly terrible. <laughs> it's, it's so it's, bad. Because Warner Brothers has one of the most biggest, robust cinematic libraries in the world. But they're, 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 their app is their their streaming service so so buns so buns worst interface ever um anyways back to the actual movie now that little rant's done um yeah it was so the man who directed this hirokazu also directed broker which is a movie that we reviewed last year yeah so and it was about the same kind of you know situation of found family but i was definitely getting parasite vibes just because of how much class factors into the storyline um i think parasite i maybe this is the wrong word for it but it was a little bit more fun i don't yeah. know if that's the right word but it, it had a certain energy that was more like not that i wasn't invested in this because i was i just i don't know it had a little bit of sassiness a little bit of like wink like i i don't know the characters were a little bit more eccentric so i don't know but i still think this was a really good depiction of like people who aren't who are on like the lower rungs of society where you know and i felt when they were shoplifting i didn't feel anything because i was just like yeah i would probably do the same thing if i was in that position like why do i care if the <laughs> store doesn't have this particular thing in stock at that moment like this is what happens with capitalism like people yeah. are forced into doing things that they probably shouldn't, but they need to survive. And so I was like, fine. I had no issues with it, <laughs> which no, maybe, no. <laughs> yeah, no issues. Um, but this movie also reminded me of Drive My Car, which is another Japanese film we watched. Did we watch it last year or the year before? We watched it uh, the year we before. We watched it the year before. Yeah, we watched it the year before. Just in terms of like a story that feels a little bit drawn out, but then you get to the end and the end is so impactful like that that gave me the same vibes where it was like, you're seeing these fam- this family kind of live their day to day. And then towards the end, things start to get revealed a bit, but that very ending when they get caught by the police and they're sitting and they're doing their interviews and stuff with the police, that really hit me. I was like, ooh. And then kind of at the very end when, I think his name is, Sh- is it Shotu? Yeah. I wrote it down. Shota. Yeah, it's, Shoda, when he's, I think he's in like foster care, but then him and the dad come back together and they're like fishing and stuff. But they have that night where he actually finds out like what happened. Like they both relay the information that they hadn't told each other before. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the family was going to leave him, you know, in the hospital, like that scene. And when he gets on the bus to go home and the dad's running after the bus, like that really broke my heart. Like that was really that was really impactful. So yeah, it gave me both of those vibes, but I feel like in Asian cinema, they just do, they just understand maybe how to deconstruct class and also talk about family in a way that I think is really unique. Yeah, this is very much, dang, I don't, I don't want to forget the name. Um, it was very, also, it was very much of the Tian Taylor movie we watched the other day. Um, Oh, a thousand and one. Uh, a thousand and one. Same issue. Kind of a found family thing 
where this woman who was in the same situation where she was abandoned as like a young young adult, you know, she finds a baby then takes care of him. These people, you know, the man, the the two lead, the parents of the household, you know, found found the girl and the little boy, you know, being abandoned. The little girl is an abusive household. Her parents aren't there to leave her. They take her in. You know, the young man, like I said, he's being abandoned by his parents at a pachinko hall. You know, mm-hmm. and they connect with the old lady. The old lady, like they save her apparently in the backstory from her husband who was, you know, abusing her, and she forms a family with them. And then she goes on to find, I guess, her niece or whatever, and she mm-hmm. takes her niece from her parents because her parents don't love her at all. And so, like she, her daughter, her niece doesn't really pay or help around the house because of that like she's actually her family you know she kind of doesn't let her bother her but you know she's I guess had issues with her parents and now she's um doing sex work and there's it's a lot of people who were abandoned and neglected from in different stages and walks in life coming and finding connections like I think the two actual parents like the even former actual relationship in mm-hmm. pretending to be parents they actually develop a relationship um but yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. But like it, like I think what I'm realizing is it's very much. Um, I think the freedom they get in um the Asian market as far as film, um, we see mm-hmm. with this movie being Japanese and the other two movies mentioned being Korean, being South Korean. Very funny. It looks like both directors from both countries kind of go back and forth because he's also like like a conventional broker. He's Japanese did a South Korean picture. A lot of the cast members from uh, Parasite, like two or three of them were in Broker as well. It seems like mm. particularly those two countries are really much invested on telling stories of societal issues and that clash mm-hmm. with the hardship people's actually develop. And I think that's in response to the outcry in like those countries. Like if you pay attention to the news, like years, like a couple years ago, they were like protesting in Japan because stuff their former president, who I guess was assassinated, was doing. They didn't agree with it, you know. South Korea do their history with North Korea and all the other stuff is trying to be on the forefront of um human rights stuff and trying. Even though we do see there's a lot of poor people, they're trying to course correct and fix those fix those issues. Um, and it's always good to see pictures like that actually mimic what's going on in their society and become. Like, these are stories, if it wasn't for these movies, these are stories that would not probably be showcased. You know, and these mm-hmm. movies like this don't get showcased here at all. I think the only one is um, a Francis McDormand movie, I forgot her name, that came out last year. Um, oh, No Man Land. No Man, no Man Land. Yeah. We, we get these kind of pictures very rare. And when we do, they're usually documentaries. Oh, the bad thing happened. This is what happens to the people the bad thing happened to. It's never the before. You know, that kind of thing. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting that like just in terms of cinema, like how it's um appreciated and like dealt with in different countries, because it just really feels like the majority well from what I can see, that America's the only one who really like puts profit over like artistic merit. Yeah. In terms of cinema. Like it seems like every other country takes the artistry of making movies deeply seriously. Um, and so they give their filmmakers a lot more freedom to kind of just make the stuff that they want to make. Um, so it's interesting that 
it seems like over here it's just it's very it's very much profit driven versus artistic driven or artistically or creative driven yeah and i think that that's also to our detriment the only thing that's kind of saving us is independent film which is where you get movies like no man land and things of that sort because bigger studios aren't even going to touch that like they're not even going to touch mid-budget movies anymore really like that's kind of disappearing as well so um it is interesting and it's funny how like like you said that the stories that are being told are mirroring what's actually going on in society i think that that's probably the most powerful content that you can make because like now people are looking at it and saying like yeah like this is my story or this is someone else i know story and hopefully that that can turn into something else where change can really start to happen which is what i think art is really for um not to get all philosophical but um yeah that's what i think it's for and for this movie specifically i thought that the idea of chosen family which is something that the director had been um kind of that's like been like how he works like he's been telling the same kind of stories over the years about this very particular subject um and i thought and i think that's really interesting because yeah it that feels more true in a lot of in in most ways like i i enjoy a good family drama where like these people are actually related and like everything's going to hell but i also think that it's really it feels more relatable to talk about people who aren't related to you who you become very attached with and form a sense of family with um because i think that that's what a lot of us that's what most of us do. i mean unless you grow up in a beautifully happy family family that's just very nice and everything's great but i don't think that's true <laughs> for most people but like yeah i have most like the people in my life who are my really close friends are in my family at this point so I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed that segment at the end when the mom is saying, well, like, okay, so yes, I didn't carry this child and give birth to this child, but just because you do that, does that actually make you a mother? And it's like, no, it's not, it doesn't. Like, it just doesn't because the actual mom of that child, of Lynn, is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's being abused. So, I mean, I'll give her some. She's, that's a, I know she's, that's a difficult situation. She's being but abused. She also didn't want her and, kid. Yeah, and she's carrying down the abuse that her husband on, on her onto the daughter, which is it just yeah. it's a cycle that just perpetuates. It's, it's one of those things that their relationship is one of the things of nature versus nurture. Like, mm. you can honestly see that there's a bond between Lynn and the, um, her found mother. You know, mm-hmm. when they when they go out and she's like, Oh, do you want the bathing suit? And she goes, No. And she's like, Oh, you hit me. And she was like, Why mm-hmm. would I hit you for saying you just don't want a bathing suit? And then they're they're bonding and she says, When when people say they love you, they don't hit you, they actually hug you and you, she breaks down crying. And at the mm-hmm. end, she's like the police like, Yeah, the girl wanted to go home and she's like, No, that's not true. Like Yeah. Like and the cops go, Oh, but you know, young daughters need her daughters or girls or children need their mothers and she was like that's not something she would say knowing mm-hmm. the bond we had and what what i know about her situation that's not that's not what she would have said so right it's exact yeah that's exactly it and i feel like that's so true like it's unfortunate because like if they had more money they probably would have been able to adopt her properly but the fact that they didn't and they just found her and like they could barely like provide for each other in that small space. I think it was really 
that was one of the hardest things for me to watch was just the fact that like the dad breaks his or um he sprains his ankle or something ankle, yeah. and he can't work and then the mom gets fired and kind of blackmailed like because the one of the workers found out about lynn and then the grandma dies i was like what are they gonna do <laughs> i was really struggling i was like who was gonna help them with the money like i just was i was stressed out but um yeah like i really didn't it was hard to see that but and and to know that these people don't really owe anything to each other because they are just kind of thrown together but that they really are forming a serious connection yeah and i have to say that one of the most beautiful parts of this story was the daughter who is doing sex work because in that one scene when she's like talking to the man who um i guess is like who's hired her for the hour or whatever like that was one of the sweetest kindest things like she was just like man i feel your pain like it's gonna be okay was so gentle and tender with him and i don't know but that was just like i've never seen because like usually when you have a character who is doing something that maybe is a little bit taboo or whatever um or there have been films and TV shows that talk about sex work and it's always very gratuitous. I feel like that was a scene where like you didn't see anything, but like she was just being kind to someone who she didn't know, but, and who is paying her for her services, but they formed a, a, a small connection there and it really was a testament to her character. And I just thought that was so, that was just such a sweet scene to me. I love and- all of the family. <laughs> and that's the funny thing. Her, her, like, falling into sex work, there's two things. The depiction of it wasn't as, um, overdone as it would be here, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. It was done, like, minimally, very, very tastefully. Like, she only take only unbuttons her shirt doesn't go any further the pet camera does not pan down doesn't it's not in a way that kind of is also exploitive of the the actor you know here mm-hmm. here in america they'd probably be kind of like oh we actually need you to take your top off all the way and that kind of stuff it's, right. it's very exploitative right. um and uh, and that's also that aspect of sex work is something that we don't really talk about here is mm-hmm. a lot of times a lot of these, let's be honest, a lot of these men are paying for these services because, you know, they want to feel a connection. Like, if you talk mm-hmm. to a lot of them, they'll, they talk on online, they'll say a lot of these guys who say they're alpha males and stuff, they're really not, but they will pay thousands of dollars for us to show up and spend the night with them so they be alone. And there are some who talk about just offering girlfriend services. Oh, I go to the hotel, this guy's like, oh, he just wants to play video games with me, or he just wants to cuddle, or something. A, lot, a large majority of sex work is not the physical aspect, mm-hmm. it's more so the, the social aspect, and that was also the thing they showed in the movie, because, like you said, when they're talking, I, they, they both start crying. Like, she talks mm-hmm. about her family and how she loves them and blah, 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 blah. And he just starts, you know, hiccuping and starts crying. And then she starts crying, you know. So I thought that was, I thought it was really touching. And I thought it was beautiful. Like, that's not, not a side of sex that's depicted very much in Hollywood. It's more so, oh, you're, you're a whore or I'm your pimp. Get my money mm-hmm. and call, and they call it a day. Yeah, I found that very powerful. And also that twist at the end that that was... The grandma was 
I was like, wait a second, what's happening here? <laughs> I thought she was just scamming that family to get money, which I guess she was. But I didn't know that the daughter, like they were one related. And then two, the daughter was also the daughter who was living with them at the crib, like at the ramshackled mm-hmm. house. And then they're, like, they're paying the grandmother to keep her there. What? And the father doesn't know yeah, he thinks he's like, in like Australia. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so that really shook me. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's a little, I wasn't expecting that. Um, okay, so I had a question. At the end, when um the son, you know, purposefully injures himself and he's in the hospital and they find out and they're about to leave. How did you feel about that? Because like well, yeah, I'll just ask you the question and then, yeah. How did you feel about them about to, you know, leave him? Um, I don't know how to describe it. Cause I think, um, in the movie, you do feel that he does have, you know, typical, he has very strong abandonment issues, even though he's has a found family, you know, once, um, um, jury or Lynn in the family, she enters the picture. He's kind of like he, he's the experience that I had having two younger sisters. They're really like the attention is no longer on you, Playboys. It's all about them. You gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta nut up and be responsible for them. And the scene where that leads up them jumping off, he's like visibly frustrated with her, trying to tell her like, "Don't take the chips away. Wait, 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 wait." And she's like making all this noise, ruffling the chips, and trying to put it under her shirt. And he's like, "Ah, oh, screw it. The guy's right there." And he just knocks everything down and jets out um and he says he he kind of just leaves on purpose like he jumps mm-hmm. off the, the dang thing on purpose um that i i cannot i don't get i don't understand um but i guess you know dealing with those abandonment issues are still there because I, I thought that was kind of like a thinly veiled metaphor for like suicide in a way without going the full the full blown mm-hmm. um and I think him him doing that, he just wanted the attention from the family back again, which is what he was expecting in the hospital. And then it turned out to be a negative, like where the, the cops kind of like arrest everybody and take them away. Um, and I do think that was also probably the reason why he decided to go find his real family, because he was holding some kind of remorse or regret for breaking up his the one that's been taking care of him the whole time. interesting because how i read it was like he he knew that lynn was going to get caught so yeah. he used himself as a diversion so that she wouldn't get caught yeah. and then in like a last ditch effort to like you know kind of from what i can understand um maybe not get in as much trouble or make sure that lynn was okay he jumped off of the highway thingy Mm-hmm. but what I thought was interesting was that, you know, there was so much emphasis put on how loyal and like tight these group of people were. And at that moment where like he was in the hospital and they were asking questions, they left like, and they were intending on leaving him in there and moving on to another place. And it, if only, and if they didn't get caught, they would have done that exact thing. And which is what they talk about in the end when he was like, so were you going to come back or no? He like the, the dad was like, no, we were going to plan to leave. And I thought that was a weird, I, not weird, but just an interesting 
look like we care about you but not enough like not to the degree like that we also want to get in trouble so we would rather just abandon you than stay by your side and like face the consequences and that made me feel a little weird because i was just like i don't know to me it seems like they they were the type of people who would do anything for like well actually that that's not true because when the grandma dies the mom really isn't that phased by it she's like she's gone bury her we'll figure out what's next so maybe i shouldn't be surprised i don't know yeah, there's still like a ragtag, even though there there are familial bonds being formed, there's still like a ragtag group of people who really have no real ties to each other. And it's it is also clear that the, the two adults who act as parents, they're able to, you know, compartmentalize and be able to leave. Um, and I feel I feel like the one who the the mother of the family, she was the more remorseful or the one connected with the kids in a way the dad was more like hey we're gonna go have fun and like rob like go shoplift and mm-hmm. stuff they really mm-hmm. kind of do remember the, the ideas we get in the family is the mom of the nursing one the dad is like hey you want to go play ball kind of person um mm-hmm. and it was cool because and, and that's more evident when um the the grandmother dies mm-hmm. and he's like she's like she's remorseful like oh death she's like basically death comes for everybody and he's like mm. oh we got to get rid of the body we got to get rid we got to just dump it like he seems like the type of guy who's always been chasing a quick buck and easy fix mm-hmm. um whereas she from my perception was always trying to do the proper thing like she worked in a department store the reason only she left the department store and stuff was because you know one of her coworkers like hey i saw you at the news and i saw the little girl you're always with that kind mm-hmm. of thing so I, and I think had nothing happened i think even if that lady even if the boy didn't jump off the the the, 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 the highway i do think at a certain point um knowing that the old lady is dead and knowing that the the two women know the account number the moment that the money was like withdrawn or whatever from that old lady's bank account he would have probably took the money and left as mm. well. So there, there's still a tinge of him. His only way to deal with abandonment is also to him once again, abandon other people, you know, once again, mm. that's the perpetuating cycle. So, yeah, they're very complex characters because they have little moments of like being very caring, but also being very cold. Mm-hmm. So because the dad is the one who finds Lynn and takes her in. You know, the mom didn't actually want her to be there. So yeah. they have they all have their moments. What I didn't like is how he basically blamed her for everything and she had to go to jail. Yeah. Was not on board with that. And she was like, You have a record, it's okay. I was like, No, I'm if I'm going down, you're going down too, sir. Like, I don't know. That's just the petty in me. Because I was like, I'm not about to be in this prison by myself. Like, no. And, like, and you I, were just as involved. And I, and I think that's more so due to the fact that, um, of course, through the course of the movie, we see her act, interacting with Lynn 
more often, mm-hmm. and him and he acting interacting with the shelter the son more often, which mm-hmm. is typical typical parental behavior. Boys are always kind of with their fathers during those years, and girls vice versa. And so for me, it was like once Lynn was no longer there, there's once the grandmother's not there, once Lynn is no longer there, she's like, I what what do I have left? What do I have to go back to? Kind of thing, you know. Mm. And because we don't really see her interact with the son at all, we don't see him in it. It's the father really interacting with Lynn, unless he show he's like, "Hey, you guys stole these fishing poles. That did a good job, Lynn." That kind of thing. Other than that, we don't see them interacting vice versa with the kids. So for me, it was at that point, you know, grandmother gone, other girl gone, Lynn is gone. I have nothing. There's no point in me going back to you guys and and to be alone, you know. So. Mm. I would have still been upset, but anyway. No, I would have been upset too, because I would have put it on him, because I said, hey, she said, don't fuck with the body, just leave it there, you know, and mm-hmm. we can go. And he was like, nah, I'm going to go dispose of it. And so she was like, oh, well, I guess I'll put the blame on me then, you know, so. Yeah, messy. Anyway, I think overall, this was such a good film. I completely understand why, like, was winning a whole bunch of awards, nominated for a whole bunch of stuff because it's really good. Like, and I think because of the story it's telling, but also because the characters are so interesting and like morally gray, there's like a lot you can gain from it. And yeah, I just think it was, and I and I like the way it was shot too. It was very naturalistic, but and I think the thing about like the technical aspects of like how it was shot and also like the score and stuff, it's very subtle. And I think that that's good because if you're doing something well, you shouldn't really notice it. And I think that they did a really good job in it's how, all of it together. How I would describe that style between this director um, and um, director of um, Parasite, their styles, their... Um, yeah. They're they're very subtle with their stuff where the score and stuff is not as evasive. And it's a drastic contrast from another or like no like Harry Nolan's visually like the shots, all that. But with him, you kind of know his little visual touches. You know, of course we just had Oppenheimer where he focuses on like the star spinning or the subtlety of the, the force of the bomb, the artistic, the beauty of those violent things. And then at certain points, the score kind of just comes in and pushes it a little bit too much. Whereas these directors kind of say, no, I'm going to let the moment speak for itself. Like you're, you're, the score is there, but it's not going to be invasive to the point where you you hear it. We're going to let the moment breathe for itself. It's like, okay, so for people who don't know, when you're writing a script and you put like for effect, like a pause, you put a beat in there to, to hold the moment let people think like i think that's what these directors do visually you know no one likes to use a score to elevate his visuals whereas they like let the visuals speak for themselves so yeah but yeah overall great film would recommend from me yeah i, I enjoy it i love it um i recommend anybody you know and I'm, we're, we're probably gonna spend a lot more time you know in the next couple of months, going back through previous Cannes winners or film festival stuff, probably digging more into more international, not international on our on our own, but 
for you guys to listen to. But yeah, it's a beautiful movie. I'd recommend it to anybody. Um, on the box office front, of course, you know, it's been an amazing success for Barbie. It's finally reached a one point eight, one point eighteen billion dollar mark globally. Um, Oppenheimer itself is closing in about a hundred and six hundred and fifty million. Um, and Meg Two came out of nowhere and got like twenty five, uh, two hundred and fifty million. Um, and of course, you know, another box office draw they're hoping which will put seats up butts in the seats is the Gran Turismo movie, which is a bio a loosely based film about a video gamer who becomes a race car driver. It is based on an actual true true story. I think the actual the character of the character who's the kid is the actual person is also one of the producers for the movie. Um but yeah it's kind of been like a record breaking weekend for um the industry in in a way, which and also you had Ninja Turtles pop out. Ninja Turtles released about a hundred million. So it's a it's a good week for film right now. Hopefully that can continue. Um we're gonna probably cover later with all the the strike stuff, the union stuff, like and I think Bob Iger a couple of weeks ago was like saying how he wants to meet with the people and I was mentioning somebody, yeah, that's because that September's right around the corner and the hard deadline for the industry to figure out the rest of the release window because they're still shuffling movies that are coming out after September for September and November. They're still shuffling around like they don't know where they're putting Doom, they don't know where they're putting Aquaman, they don't put it, they don't know where they're putting a lot of these big later movies. But if they don't figure stuff out by Labor Day, next year's uh window is fucked up because a lot of these movies were mm. different levels of pre-production and then that rolls over till uh uh 2025 and so on and so forth so like the next four or five fit years of film are kind of in limbo unless they get this stuff sorted out by um labor day but for right now it's been a good month for film um and it's, and it's probably in the favor of both the writers and actors um that their films are doing well and weirdly enough like suits is people are streaming suits right now which i find weird on netflix and those writers are currently yeah those writers are saying they've only made like awful residuals about i want to say two thousand dollars from residuals like for some reason people are streaming the crap out of suits i don't know why you know but hey so yeah but that's it for the the box office side Shout out to um so speaking of the strikes, what else are we gonna talk about until this is resolved? Um after newest AMPTP meeting, the WGA says its offer is being evaluated. So over a hundred days after the strike started, the writers union has been given an offer. It plans to take its time answering. So there was an initial meeting that we already discussed that obviously broke down, didn't work. But then there was another meeting that happened on August 11th. And the WGA said they're going to take the time, really actually think about, not if they're going to say yes to it, but they're going to they're gonna think about it. They're going to consider it. They're going to talk to the other board members. Like, they're going to figure that out. And when I read this, I said... Is this a good sign? I hope so. Like, I don't know if it is or not, but I really do hope that, like, 
some there's some some progress because there really hasn't been anything that's been happening since this strike started with the writers guild back in may so things have kind of just gone from bad to worse so i kind of hope that even if they don't say yes to this exact proposal that hopefully they'll be making some more strides and getting things figured out so that before that labor day deadline something can be resolved like obviously it's not it's a little difficult because you have two unions that are striking and their concerns are similar and maybe you can say that if one gets dealt with the other one will but we we don't know that for sure so I'm just hoping that some progress gets made because maybe, I don't know, something will get figured out. There'll be The producers might be a little bit more wise and <laughs> want to actually make things happen. Because I was thinking about this earlier that like not figuring the stuff out for the writers and the actors are so counterproductive for their own goals. Yeah. So it's just like... It, it's in your best interest to make this work. So I, I hope that they figure it out because after 100 days like with the writers it's been a month as of today with the actors being on strike like we gotta we gotta get this ball moving yeah it's it's you know interesting like because they bemoan the idea of like animation and stuff like that but their plans to use oh we'll just cgi all the actors and make ai write and stuff but they bemoan the world of animation you know and one of the big draws for these pictures are hey i get to see these famous people on screen um and there's also a change to sack africa in the midst of strike before they've been allowing concessions to the a lot of independent um projects uh, i think apple was given some for a while because they're not part of the amtp um as was um of course a24 and a lot of other small projects i mentioned before a couple weeks ago there are about uh 26 um projects that were still being shot by independent projects um but sagrafa said they would no longer approve indie projects written under the current um uh, uh writers of america contract so whatever projects that are still continuing to be done like that were already written in the can they're mm. they're not going to go for so any projects that are being worked on now um mostly independent projects that are worked mm-hmm. on now because there are still writers and actors who do independent projects i think those projects are still free to go but all the projects that were started prior to the strike they're mm-hmm. like yeah even they're not gonna let it continue um which is good because and i think they're also they are showing like yeah our needs are being met for the actors where the actors get concessions for their strike but what about the writers who are also working on these independent projects as well? They need, they need that solidarity as well. So I think that's a, a good move um, for them. Um, and it's it's had a little bit of backlash. Um, uh, so we'll see how it goes. Um, they said mm-hmm. fr- this is from um, uh, I'm not sure for this. I'm not sure if it was Fran Dresser, but they said um. We have been advised by the Writers Guild of America that this modification will assist them in executing their strike strategy, and we believe it does not undermine the utility and effectiveness of ours. It's a win-win change. So once again, it goes on to reiterate, yeah, all those projects that were that were done being written before the strike that are still shooting, nah, even other independent actors don't work on them. So 
Yeah, that deadline. <laughs> Ooh, that deadline fast approaching because now the stuff that was already written, they're telling actors on, on independent projects that once again we mentioned before was would save the industry like it did during the pandemic. Like, nah, mm-hmm. you got to back off that too. So mm, it's going to be rough. Going to be rough one. So. Yeah. Hopefully that'll put a fire under their feet and really get them moving. Um, moving on from that to um to a bit of you know superheroish actors, their movies and their performances. Um, of course, you know Zachary Levi of Shazam Two was very much deride for at the time his performance of Shazam and the reception of the movie, shifting from the young actor portraying Shazam as a kid to Zachary Levi. They did kind of the whole rock issue kind of forced the movie to bomb. And you have um Adam oh I don't even know his last name, but he's a, a coming day actor saying, you know, we don't get variety in film anymore because they're focusing more on these big budget projects. Mm. He's kind of pulled Zachary Levi himself has kind of pulled the same view as um Stephen Amell. Um he made comments at a convention that kind of got taken the wrong way as not agreeing to the strike, but now he's saying for calling out Hollywood saying a, a lot of these movies are crap and he wants movie coers to actually uh care about what they're watching because the industry really doesn't care to make any great great and good pictures anymore um hmm. which so i don't know his career i think is in a weird place because i think post chuck he was supposed to be that new funny actor dude and he hasn't gone anywhere like seems like john krasisti kind of filled the lane he was given you know, you know, with his with going beyond the office to you know, showing up in the MCU and then showing up and playing um, uh, Quiet Place, acting and directing in it, and then you know, playing Jack Reacher on um, oh, not Jack Reacher, but Jack Ryan on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, eh. it's yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting his perspective on it, just because like he was very outspoken about like how mean people were about Shazam 2 and saying that it's a really great movie and you know I I don't it's interesting how hard he defended that film but also now coming in with this comment of like yeah Hollywood makes garbage and we shouldn't accept that and it's like well yes (laughs) this is true um to what degree that you're a part of that I don't I guess maybe he doesn't see himself or Shazam. I don't, I'm not going to say Shazam is crap. I actually didn't watch the second one. I watched the first one. I thought it was fun, but not like it wasn't the greatest thing I had ever seen before. It was, yeah. it was a fun little romp, you know, um, not to be taken too seriously. Like just go to the movies and just like switch your brain off. And he's saying, don't accept that. Like so the movies that I'm doing, don't accept that as like, a good standard or, or something that you should be spending your money on. So it's interesting to see his, it seems like his own dichotomy on like how he feels about this because it's like, well, you're sort of a part of it in yeah, a, you're, a way. You're a part of the problem. You're, you're saying basically all the movies I do is crap. Man, my boy, you chose those movies. No one, no one, <laughs> no one. And then the thing about him coming out about it now is also the funny part of in the midst of, you know, DC figuring stuff out, like, they can't really promote um, Blue Beetle, which is coming out in a couple of days, due to the, the uh, writer strike and the actor strike. Right. You know, they can't really promote it. So it's kind of been the fans promoting Blue Beetle. And 
the back behind the scenes at DC, they've been kind of like exercising all their old stuff, you know, all the stuff that happened around Shazam, True, Black Adam, Superman, all that stuff. It's kind of like, yeah, they're not a part of it anymore. I know Gal Gadot was trying to spin it before because Gal Gadot does have a movie coming out on Netflix, I think this week. And mm-hmm. she was like, oh, yeah, Wonder Woman 3, we're going to do it. And then the studio was like, no. So it's kind of funny that in the midst of DC, like saying, yeah, all those, all that stuff we had before, all these actors, they're not coming back. Now he wants to mouth off and say, oh, this is crap kind of thing. You know, I feel like mm. now, now that his pocketbook is being hit with it, now, you know, the idea of just doing pure superhero movies, car blanche is a bad idea. So. That's interesting. That's an interesting take. <laughs> Look, I'm um, just saying, I find it funny that the main culprit behind DC's issues, The Rock, has not said shit since Black Adam Bomb. Like, he's like he's giving money to the writers and actors strike. He's just, but he's just like, I'm not saying anything. Like, I want people to not remember me <laughs> at all. So, yeah. Yeah, he was very bold. Um, and speaking of another person in, in this DC world, wait, is it DC? No, is it Marvel? Is Wait, his, is it Sony? His, God, his is Sony Marvel. Oh, is Disney all of the mess? Um, yeah. Yes, Aaron Taylor Johnson gave an interview before the strikes happened, so it was fine. Um, that he didn't really care for his major franchise roles. He said that that he wasn't interested in doing those kind of things. Like he did Kick Ass, and he did. Um, that movie Godzilla, he did the Avengers, and he was like not interested in it. And yet he's back to do Craven the Hunter, and yeah. basically he's saying like in the interview he's saying um, that you know he he the script was so different and the director was different, and that it wasn't going to be like a jokey haha kind of quippy Marvel movie, but that it was going to be really serious, and you know it was going to have like stakes and it was going to be you know it's a tragedy and it's very funny how you know what i respect michael shannon for just straight up being like this doesn't make any sense why am i doing this i have no idea i'm still going to do it though like i respect that line of thinking of where you know that this is dumb but you're just gonna do it maybe because you need the money or maybe because you're just like whatever i'm bored like i just respect that more than people being like actually we're doing something totally different here like you've never seen a superhero movie like this and then you watch it and you're like okay so this is exactly like everything else and maybe worse you know so it's very funny how like these actors try to like change it around to make it or maybe even make themselves feel like what they're doing is like worth doing like in terms of if you're gonna do the superhero thing like they're trying to like twist their way into figuring out like how this has some kind of artistic artistic creative merit and i'm not saying it doesn't like i think the people who work on these films are very talented i'm just saying like in the grand scheme of like what we're getting in cinema especially from these types of movies where it seems very by the numbers and that because it has to fit within an entire um, arc of like other movies that haven't even come out yet. You're limited creatively. You're not really doing anything different because you can't do anything different, right? There are, there are limitations to what you can do. So it is going to be pretty much the same thing. Now, whether there's blood and gore, I mean, I guess that makes it a little bit better in terms of like, well, it's not safe, but it, probably might still be safe because again you're still having to follow a script of like 
this is what the beats that we have to hit in order to get to this next thing that's going to set up the next thing for the next year you know so it's like you're not really doing anything different even though i know you want to believe that you are because maybe artistically that makes you feel like you're acting or being an actual actor i don't know because to me, unless you're doing like a Chris Nolan Batman or a Denis Villeneuve Dune, you're not really doing anything different. Or even the Batman by yeah. Matt Reeves. Like, and to me, that could have even gone further. You know, it's a PG-13 movie. It could have been rated R. So I, I want to support you, Aaron, but like, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, it's funny. Like, with Zachary Levi, he was like, for him, so jam. I'm probably butchering that. That's too many Z's and too many S's in like one word. <laughs> but for him, I think with how the industry was, superheroes, like like he was thinking for him that was supposed to be his big launching pad to do other movies. You know? Mm. Whereas Aaron was doing kick ass, but then he goes, like I say, Godzilla Avengers. Like I can understand uh Zachary being, you know, disenthused and dis- and unmotivated by it because he was like Oh, doing the superhero movie like this, the world we're in, like, oh, you do a superhero movie and then you get other opportunities or other stuff. And he never got those. Like, he didn't mm-hmm. get it. Whereas, Aaron, you go from Kick-Ass, you do Godzilla, you do Avengers. You're saying, I didn't care for them because I thought they were bad. You're still doing them. Like, mm. you can't say they're trash and then continue to do trash. Like, doesn't make any sense. Like, at all. Like, the only movie outside of that purview that was good, like, was Tenet. You know, even though Tenet was confusing, everybody enjoyed it. And he did Anna Karenina, which was an amazing movie. Yeah. He's done some really good, all the stuff that isn't superhero stuff. Yeah. Wonderful. So Bullet Train was good too. He complains about the superhero movies, but it's clear he can act in other projects and do act and do that yeah. very well. But he still does the superhero movies. You, you can't do that. That's like a kid touching the stove, like, ah, oh, the stove is hot. And then moving ahead. And then go, again, ah, oh, the stove is hot. And do it again. It's, it's it, I don't know, it's so dumb. But whatever. <laughs> I, uh. It's a very. I really want to know what goes through their heads when they're thinking about these things. Like, how do you, how do you explain it? Like, I just, I'm just so curious. Like, how do you make it make sense to you? And then you got you got Stephen Amell now, of course, of CW Arrow fame. You know, he was bad mouthing before, but now there are pictures of him on the, on the, on the. On the strike, you know he's perfectly like, shaven. The look on his face is like I don't want to be here, but it seems like he got a real, a real serious call between either Fran or somebody or one of his friends or somebody's one of those people is like or his publicist like look, people ain't really fucking what you said. <laughs> you you need to you need you need to shut up and go join those strikes but in those pictures Stephen Amell does not look happy to be there at all you know? yeah and I'm like that's happened to a few people when they said some out of pocket stuff about the strikes and they were like oh no, no no I didn't mean it like that that's not, that's not what I was trying to say because it's like you got people over here struggling to eat food and to pay their rent and you have the nerve to say some mess like you're not you are not the person to be impacted by this stuff. So maybe don't say anything other than I stand in solidarity with the SAG and the WGA unions. Like that, that needs to just be yeah. the no line. One, just say they, that. And then that's it. 
no one was asking you to show up. Just don't. If you don't agree, don't say shit. Because Stephen Amell has a he's a producer. He has his own show that he's also producing, and you know he's able to get money and stuff advertising on like pay per view events where I see commercials for ads and commercials for his show. Like, all right, you don't agree with it, shut the fuck up. Nobody needs to know that you don't agree with it because it's gonna fuck with your money. You know, and and that mm-hmm. probably might happen. Like his actors who are now probably transitioning to join SAG or the writers in WG, like I don't want to go back to that work environment knowing that my boss is also an actor who's we're pushing for these issues does not agree with what we're doing. So it's just it's just so dumb. It's a so mess. Dumb. Oh, anyway, <clears throat> um, in other news, the Blind Side um, story that came to prominence in I think it was 20 or not 20 2008 2009 um Michael Orr who was the focus of that story or at least it was supposed to be the focus focus of that story uh alleges that the Tubi family tricked him into a conservatorship and denied him bill payments so he's already been outspoken about like this about the film and like how he didn't think it was an accurate depiction of like what happened and also um, that he didn't receive any money from it, even though the Tui family did. And so now, oh, what? Oh, okay. So now um, in the petition, or alleged that he received no payment from the film ad- adaptation, while the Tui's and their two birth children received millions of dollars in royalties. And that... I think, yeah, and that they tricked him into being in, into a conservatorship and that he was never actually adopted. Which is, if you know anything about conservatorships, if you follow the Britney Spears thing, like, those things are really difficult to get out of, actually. Like, once someone has, like, so much control over, like, not only your money, but, like, your well-being and stuff like that, it gets it's really dangerous. It gets really messy. I don't think it's healthy. I, I understand why it's, why they have things like that, but it seems like nine times out of 10, it's not effective for the people who are underneath it. And it's only beneficial for like the lawyers and the families to bring, bring the conservatorship on to the conservatee. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't know how to fit. Cause I want to know the, the process because apparently it's been uh, he he like I said he's been outspoken about the blind side before he doesn't like it because it's not an accurate depiction of what happened. Um, mm. But that concern also goes to when the book was coming out because um, the book came out two years before he got drafted. I think he got drafted in two thousand. He got the movie came out like around the same time he was being drafted to NFL. Um, so that's the the thing like. So them, there's money from the books he didn't receive either. There's money from the movies he didn't receive either. Um, yeah, and if I want to know if the conservatorship even also affected his NFL money as well, because mm. because of the perception of him doing the movie into the book, he's one of those. You think if an uh, NFL athlete has a, a bio picture made out of them, you know, coming into league, they usually kind of get sponsors kind of go, oh. Let's attach to him. He's got a movie come out, but he didn't really get like you wouldn't see a commercial with him at all. So this right. obviously the depiction of him in the movie being being his own words being depicted as more mentally incapacitated 
than he actually is in real life, diminished his um earnings as an NFL athlete outside of playing football. Um, so it's it's not a good look. And and I always was kind of always sussy about this story mm-hmm. anyway. Like at the time, I'm gonna be honest, I was making jokes with Oz, that dude from Blindside, blah blah blah. But, you know, as you get older, you're like, you know, this kind of feels like really predatory. And we've seen it documented nowadays where a lot of families adopt kids for profit. You know, and it's clear once they saw he was had NFL or college football talent that, you know, they could profit on this. And it's very, very much it's giving me get out a lot, you know. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, hope I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Hope it works out for him. I you know, hope he gets yeah. his due because apparently the movie, the family was paid for the movie about well altogether between book and movie was about three hundred mil. That's the thing I read. I'm not sure if that's accurate. Mm. Um, and he didn't get any of it. So yeah, that's messed up. Really messed up. Um, people are saying they want Sandra Bullock to speak out about it, but um, I'm not gonna. You can't put that onus on her. You can't yeah. put it on. So she she was just acting in it. She has no involvement in the production of it. You can't really force it on her to say something about it. So that's true. Moving on to what we watched, <laughs> I can't talk <laughs> talk about what you watched this week. Okay, so she's sitting. If if for all the audio listeners, she's laughing currently because I said earlier in our conversation that I had to watch the little rascals. And let me <laughs> let me let me course correct. I didn't watch the little rascals like movie that we all grew up watching. Um I came into the house and my mom was like downstairs like chilling. And I was like I walk by the screen and I'm looking in the picture and I just see a little boy in like a suit in black and white or technicolor. I'm like, are you watching Little Rascals? She's like, how do you know I'm watching Little Rascals? And I was like, shoot, because I knew Little Rascals, that movie was based on a bunch of old serials and comedies. And I've never watched it before, but I knew instinctively like that kid on the screen was Alfalfa. And she just got like so shocked and appalled that I knew that it was Little Rascals. And so we sat there like for a good hour. Like it was on uh, it's a streaming platform called uh, Free Free V, I think. Oh, Free V. Yeah. yeah. And so she was just, wa- we were just watching like for a good hour all the like little rascals like shorts from like um Hal Roach from like nineteen eighty four to like nineteen forty four. And in watching those I like saw like oh they pulled like every like bit from these shorts for that movie. Like and it mm-hmm. was like it was like oh like the scene where the boys are in the um the dancer side for the girls in tutus dressing up like girls. They pulled that from like two different they pulled that concept from two different, you know, shorts. Fifteen minute shorts. So like they pulled everything out of that for that movie out of those things. And I was like, that's that's fun. Cause I've never watched those old classic girls. So it's always good when you have the opportunity to see where the concept and ideas come came from. And you could see the homage and care that went into that remake and respect for those original serials, you know, that they, they tied every bit they could from those serials into it. Like, you know, the two little kids are like buddy budding around like the, the, the kids would go, I got a dollar. Those two kids, they're buddy budding around in the, the shorts too. Um, and honestly for that original little rascal skilt, as much as we might say, it's kind of weird. If you watch a depiction of Buckwheat, 
who Eddie Murphy makes fun of in his Saturday Night Live as being an adult buckwheat. Um, mm-hmm. As for cringy it kind of is, it was very progressive for its time because they featured a little boy, a little black boy interacting and playing with a group of white kids without, you know, any kind of social kickback. And this is at 1934. So just having Buckwheat there and hanging around a bunch of kids, you know, was really progressive for the time. Like his depiction is not the best, but mm. at that time period, you got to take what you can get. So. Cool. Well. <laughs> Um, so I rewatched Bones and All because it's on Amazon now. Apparently, MGM owns Amazon or Amazon owns MGM now, which I did not know. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Um, but yeah, so Bones and All came out last year. Luca Gardnerino, Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet, Mark Rylance. Um, I watched it again when I watched it in theaters. I was cramping so there were moments that I definitely missed because I was like shaking like pills into my hand like trying not to die <laughs> but <laughs> but I actually got to just watch this again like and you know rewind fast forward take a pause it's it's not as good as I remembered it being to be honest like it's it's fine like it's a good movie but it's not like a it's I think if anyone else made it, I probably wouldn't be thinking about it as much. But because Luca makes all his movies where you can't stop thinking about it after you watch it, I was thinking about it a lot. I think there's only so much you can go with the cannibalism thing. I feel like you can, I think it was a good analogy for other stuff. But in terms of like, what, (laughs) understanding the characters and like how far we can push them can't really go that far because it's like it's still cannibalism like it's still a very strange weird thing to be doing um so it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag for me what i will say is that the score is incredible like i didn't appre- i guess i didn't really think about it when i was watching it in the theaters but watching it again like with my headphones on that score was fantastic so the score by trent reznor and atticus ross dope like so good like it gives it gives you the same vibe that you would have gotten watching gone girl or um the social network or a movie like that where the score plays so heavily into like the emotion of the scene so they did a fantastic job on that i will say like if you don't want to if you don't care about anything else about this film just watch for the score because it's great and also the cinematography it's very good as well and the performances are great too like it's a, it's a good movie it's just like not as good as i remembered it being and definitely is not my favorite of his films i i think that like my favorite film of his is i am love with Tilda swinton but like in terms of like overall packaging call me by your name is probably his best maybe Suspiria if you're like into that um but this had good elements to it, but it definitely wasn't like a... I don't know how impactful it would have been to most people. I don't know how most people feel about this movie, honestly, but <laughs> I think people like it. I'm not sure. I, I rewatched it. I thought it was good. I will listen to the score. That's <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, 
and yeah that's it from us this week we hope that you're taking care of yourselves and doing well make sure to check out all of our social media support us if you can and we will see you guys in the next episode goodbye au revoir